Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and welcome to a special edition of this podcast. As regular listeners will know, we are go-anywhere investors who cover all asset classes anywhere in the world in the quest to build portfolios that can compound capital for our clients. Normally, that means that we end up talking about all sorts of different investments in the course of these episodes. But today is a little different. Today, we're joined by a special guest to delve a little deeper into one asset class in particular, the world of commercial real estate. I hope you enjoy it. And as ever, do subscribe if you'd like to hear more. So first and foremost, I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of Talking Capital, where I'm not, as usual, joined by Robert Sears, our CEO, but instead joined by Ross Davies, partner and head of real estate for us here at CapGen. Uh, And the reason for that is because we're going to talk about commercial real estate in this special edition of Talking Capital. So, Ross, over to you. What uh, what are you seeing right now? What do you think? Well, thanks, Ian. Um, I think just as a general overview, what with rising cost of capital um, and accelerated structural change within the main occupational markets, it's pretty fair to say that everyone in the industry is having to work both harder and smarter just to stand still. In terms of the pricing, there's been a rapid repricing in most of the sectors, and this has and will lead to quite a few opportunities. But I'm definitely not a subscriber. I think the key caveat here is I'm not a subscriber to the mantra that because something cost X last year and now it's X minus 20, 25%, that it necessarily means there's actually inherent value within that asset. Yeah, because you're you're saying there, Ross, that to, to work out what something's worth, you don't start from what somebody in the recent past said it was worth. You start from, okay, what is it generating as an asset and what would somebody in the future pay me for it? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assumption. And you just can't rely upon what we had post-GFC where you have the sort of super low interest rate environment, which basically buoys all boats. You now have to work a lot harder to make your assets work for you. Can we just unpick it a bit? So we're going, to, we're, we're going from the top down. So, so we've, we're focusing on real estate. But as we know, real estate is itself at many, many sectors and subsectors and different styles of occupation, uh, office, residential, hotel, industrial, light industrial, small light industrial, large light industrial, and so on and so forth. Can you just take us through what's going on? So beneath the sort of big picture uh, you know, real estate's been changed by the rising interest rates, what that's meant for the particular subsectors. Sure. I think just to keep it simple, um, pricing, as you're taught as a valuation student, um, should be driven by both investor and occupational demand. And you need to look at both of those in isolation and both of those together. And and what you tend to find in cycles is that two of them can dislocate at times. And we've seen a a dramatic repricing of global real estate since central banks started their tightening regimes. And as that cost of capital has risen, it brings the true underlying fundamentals of both the wider sector and in turn each asset into much sharper focus. So Drilling into that, on the occupational side, smaller industrial units, for example, and the manufacturing market looks really resilient. Um, Reason being, you've got a mix of onshoring going on, 
and you've got a really tight town planning regime in place in the UK, which has actually led to... So to, I'm going to jump in there just a moment, Ross, if you don't mind. So just quickly, just for, 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 for listeners, when you say smaller, can you help us sort of imagine what you mean? What's the difference between small and large? So if you were driving up the M1 and you look left or right, you will see these big black or big blue boxes um, of kind of key distribution units with the usual suspects on the signage board who are taking many, many hundreds of thousands of square feet. I'm talking more so about um, sort of out of town, edge of urban environments where you have um, smaller operators taking one, three, five thousand square feet in smaller units. And you're, 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 you're experiencing within that sector just a lack of supply, a resilient level of demand. But to give you a flavor, you could have um, a, a small manufacturing business that's looking to expand. And it then finds that on the same estate, other businesses are also expanding. They then look elsewhere, can't find any supply. And then, for example, McDonald's pitches up and McDonald's decides to operate a sort of a quasi-dark kitchen from that industrial estate with a fleet of Deliveroo drivers. Ten years ago, McDonald's weren't cooking burgers on industrial estates. They're now looking to do that and are indeed doing that, which adds just another component to the supply-demand imbalance. And um, so that's the that's the industrial. What about some of the other sectors? I think an easy one at the moment is just walk around London in the afternoon or evening, look at the sort of the tourism business traveller. The occupational market for luxury London hotels looks really quite strong at the moment. You've got pent up slash revenge spending going on. You've got the business traveller back in gusto. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got sort of secondary, poorly specified regional located offices and shopping centres, which are facing significant headwinds at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So sort of, I don't know, Ross, what do you think? I mean, is is the, I mean, as we know, there at any moment in time, there are always opportunities, which is something, you know, across the board, we always believe that no matter how gloomy or not the macro environment, there are always opportunities if you look hard enough and not that, and what that I guess, France is the fact they're always winners and always losers. Do you think that the gap between the winners and losers is becoming wider at the moment or, or you know, drawing your experiences? Has that always been the case? I think it goes back to interest rates. You know, when you're in the low interest rate environment and borrowing is cheap, you can get away with mistakes or you can get away with substandard properties. And, and now, as we're seeing, investors who aren't long-term investors or investors who are new to a marketplace and bought in recently are having to get real in terms of the cost of their borrowing, which is practically doubled, combined with the fact that they've been asked to refinance with a lender and now have to put equity in, despite only putting equity in two or three years ago at an LTV of 50 or 60%, they're being asked to put more equity in today, which is something that most hadn't budgeted for. Yeah, so to your point about you have to sort of master... Uh, the investment market as well as the, the occupational market. You're saying that in the investment market, there is this sort of quantum change where these you know strong, positive, albeit nominal, uh, interest rates are changing the financing environment. Let's talk a little bit about occupational. I want to. I want to. I mean, we all talk about it, and we all uh, you know speculate on its long-term impact and how things have been changed by it. But can you just talk about? What in practice you've seen of the impact of COVID? So 
uh, we, we had a world 2019 and we had 2023 and, and the intervening bit was clearly COVID. What's its impact been? How has it changed what you see in, in your world? Well, I think it depends about which sector you're talking about. Um, in a way, COVID was um, the death now for certain retail and hospitality sectors. But I think really it's had its greatest sort of lasting impact on the office sector. So COVID accelerated um, the decline of what we'd call marginal offices. Um, and then when people were forced to work from home, it actually gave both employers and employees the confidence that certain functions could continue and they could continue seamlessly at home by working remotely. Personally, I think the sort of working from home movement's been a bit overdone. Um, so it's got a place within some occupiers, within the sort of hybrid model. Um, but offices, they've been smashed really by a perfect storm of lower physical occupation and also rising ESG requirements. So whilst I don't really want to talk about EPCs, because we all know what EPCs are, Energy Performance Certificates. Which is how green you are, isn't it, as a, as a building? Exactly, exactly. And, and there are quite a few metrics in the real estate industry as to how green you are. You mustn't forget that an office building today, along with any other commercial piece of real estate, has to have an EPC rating of C by 2027 for it to be let, and a rating of B by 2030. So bearing in mind you need to hit a C by 2027, less than 20% of buildings in the UK actually achieve this rating at the moment. So what we're going to see is an abundance of quasi-stranded assets. So, so hold on, that's, that's quite terrifying, Ross. So you're saying that, by, therefore, because I can do maths, therefore 80% of the real estate stock won't hit that or doesn't currently hit that B EPC rating. Exactly. So it doesn't currently hit it. So you've got, well, two options. One, you spend money to get it back up to grade, if indeed the building is capable of doing that, or B, I guess you give up, don't you? And we're seeing that latter behaviour. I mean, America often leads the way, but over on the West Coast over the last six months, where we've got record vacancy rates in, in office stock, we're seeing borrowers who have given up and they're trying to hand the keys back to banks. And you've got the banks on the other end of the trade who are literally jumping from side to side trying not to catch the keys because they don't want to take the buildings back. Yes, I, I remember uh, many years ago Detroit uh, bulldozing uh, houses because they had such a high level of vacancy in residential they thought was never going to be filled and it was a blight on the city. They actually physically removed real estate assets and just shrunk their residential stock. Is that feasible, Ross? I mean, what, what do we do with all this 80%? I mean, what what is the, does it just sort of wither? I think it comes back to do the bones of the real estate that you own actually enable you to do the work that's needed? And is the location right? You know, you can look at trends within the office sector, but much sort of talked about term is the hotelification of the office sector. Um, and as a landlord now, you've got to work a lot harder and spend a lot more money to attract a tenant. So you talk, Ross, about the hotelification of the office sector, which I suppose means making it easy for tenants to occupy. So rather than taking up stripped out space and having to put in all the kit and the, and the wall coverings and the power and the internet and 
sinks and all that sort of thing. The landlord does that. And so as a tenant, you're for a frictional costs of getting into your space and getting working are reduced. And that, that's the hotelification um, concept. I mean, in some ways, pioneers of this were WeWork, uh, which was a company we, we talked a lot about. But do you want to just take us through that WeWork story? Sure. I, I think WeWork, it, it was a pioneer and it definitely was a catalyst in the whole sort of hotelification of, of offices. And what it's meant is sort of setting aside the success and then failure of WeWork, it means that landlords now have effectively been taxed. Landlords now have to do so much more to attract tenants than they used to have to do. And there's a slight irony in it because the landlord is spending more than it's ever spent before because it's fitting out offices ready for a tenant to move in. And in return, the irony being that the tenant is actually committing to a shorter lease term with said landlord. Because under the old model, the tenant would sign up for five or 10 or 15 years with with very few breaks. But when WeWork emerged, it offered tenants incredibly flexible occupation. So they could be in for one, two, three years. They could be in for six months or three months. And those tenants have got used to that dynamic and now ask for that flexibility from the conventional landlords. So it's a double hit, really, for landlords. They're having to spend more, but in return, get less income security from their occupier base. Yes, if I could just lift out from WeWork and just link it to a a theme which crops up uh, at the end of every cycle, which is sort of shadow banking. It was clearly there in... 2008, 2009, which was asset liability mismatch. Your liabilities were of longer duration than your assets. And that, I think, is, the, in a way, the story of WeWork. It was sort of shadow banking real estate. They were signing these, these long leases with landlords. That was their liability. And their asset, on the other hand, was a very, very short, very attractive for tenants model where you could come in and pay rent for a short period of time and then move out. And uh, clearly, that didn't, that didn't work out. So that's quite granular. And perhaps what I'd like to do now, that's a curiosity, sort of move us from, okay, what's going on? What are you seeing? What are the trends to, okay, what's the opportunity? Because we do firmly believe that there are always opportunities. It's a question of how easy or difficult they are to find. So uh, perhaps we can start out by what's actually going on. So can you talk about what you see families doing at the moment in real estate? What what deals are you seeing going on? Well, fat families are active and they're either active through standalone deals or as syndicates. And without wishing to generalise, unless the family is a property specialist, they're tending to stick to the traditional sectors such as prime hotels, offices and super prime retail. We're definitely seeing REITs becoming much more of a discussion point with families as they look to build specific portfolios rather than tracking the wider performance within the REIT market. You look at REITs and the discounts to NAV, the ability to achieve concentrated exposure to certain sectors, but still with the liquidity that a REIT gives you, um, and also some really, really good management teams out there, is appealing in terms of the REIT sector to families. I think also it's no surprise to you or anybody else that the, the real estate market, like other markets, it comes in cycles. And I saw this back post-GFC when I was working in the agency and brokerage worlds when literally every institutional 
investor evaporated and the only buyers left were either the sovereign wealth funds or the family offices. And the family offices did make an aggressive play back into the market at that point. Investors were being told at that time that real estate behaved a bit like gold, but with a dividend. And as we all know, gold might be 24 carats, it might be less. And we're seeing pretty similar dynamics unfolding again this time. But the difference is that whether people are buying in at this point in the cycle, you can't again rely on abnormally low interest rates to drive the majority of your performance. You now have to add that value yourself. So with that in mind, Ross, where, where do you think the opportunities are? And is this a time to, I mean, do you think, uh, I suppose, do you, do you think there are enough opportunities out there to make it worth looking or, or given your comment about how, you know, financing conditions have changed, it's, it's still time to sit on your hands. What's your feeling? Well, I just look at what we're doing at the moment. We are now actively encouraging our clients, um, those who wish to have exposure to real estate, to increase their real estate exposure. And for the last four years, I've consistently delivered the message, which is we were not buyers. We were not buyers of new assets because we felt they were overpriced and a repricing moment was coming. And we actually discouraged our clients from doing so. Yeah, admittedly, we had some clients who had historical legacy allocations to real estate. And where they did, we encouraged them to future-proof their assets, i.e. against the sort of hotelification of offices, for example, or where there were hotels improving the quality of of the rooms and the suite rates um, so we could improve the, the rack rate being charged on rooms. So we were all about future-proofing, improving, rather than making fresh allocations. Uh, I think some of the best opportunities um, which will present themselves will be at the land end of the market. So this is either raw land or buildings which need demolition and repurposing or rebuilding. These aren't typically targeted by families unless there is a specialist team or partner on board. I mean, you look at land, just to give you an example, it's the hardest hit end of the property market during downturns, and it does tend to perform in the upturn. When your valuer looks at appraising a land value, they need to bear in mind yields, which have softened, i.e. prices have fallen. They need to look at interest rates, which have risen, and they need to look at building costs, which have also risen considerably in the last five years. So when you combine these three components to get the residual value, which is the price of the raw land, that value falls considerably. And due to the absence of rental income, land is quite difficult to finance because you don't have an income stream to service the interest payments. So this makes that portion of the real estate market much thinner. And that's where I think there'll be some interesting opportunities. And and so your point there, Ross, is because land value is what's left over when everything else has been paid for, and, well, you, you, you imagine the building on it and then you subtract all the costs of getting that building put up. And then, you know, what's left, the residual value is the value of the land. You're saying that because the cost of putting a building on a bit of land has gone up so much and the value of the building has gone down because interest rates have gone up double whammy, the, the residual value left over has has fallen sort of very dramatically. So what, what does that look like, though, as a deal? Can you describe something you've done or you can see or opportunities out there? What, what I mean, is this land in, in uh, centrally located? Is it a building that, you know, going to fail that 
EPC tests, which you can knock down and end up with a clean site or, you know, is it land on the fringes of uh, existing conurbations? What, 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 what does it look like? I think without naming specific deals, it's, it looks like a considerable repricing. So from deals that we've seen in London, if you're looking to buy at the land end or you're looking to buy a site or a building that needs repurposing and rebuilding, we've seen these assets downvalued by anywhere between 25 and 50% over the last 12 to 18 months. And if you were to take that out of London, you're looking at north of 40, 50% in terms of revaluation. And do you have to be willing to build on the land to make that something you can do? Or, or, or is it a, an asset that you, 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 know, you would feel confident in buying with the expectation of being able to sell it on in the future? I think it very much depends upon your risk profile as an investor. Some investors will literally bank the land, work up a planning consent and then look to move it on. Others will actually literally want to take it from land to a consented land site through to a built building, through to a let building and then trade it on. So it, it does depend upon how much risk and how much capital you want to keep. So I want to just, in a way, try and link in a way the conversations that I have with Robert and the conversation that we're having about particular asset class and in our broader macro asset allocation conversations, we are saying difficult times, you know, be, be careful about what you do in real estate. You don't want to go too early, which is a broad sort of macro view. You, you know, we probably, probably hold to, uh, but that is consistent with what you're saying, Ross, which is that might be true, but there are opportunities if you engage in the detail, if you look hard and you know, if you've got someone who knows what they're doing, helping you do it, you don't, this is, um, this is not for beginners. And I wonder if you could sort of describe a little bit how you reconcile that, which I suppose is the difference between, yeah, <laughs> to borrow the language of equity investing, you know, um, a, an opportunity in a value trap. How do you see that? What would you, how do you distinguish between something that's really an opportunity and something that's just, you know, might have fallen a lot in value, but doesn't necessarily mean it's yet good value or cheap? I think you've got to ask yourself two questions. One is, why is it fallen in value? And secondly, can you add value? So taking the first, why is it fallen in value? There's usually two reasons for that. One is macro environment, and the other is specific to the asset itself. And then in terms of the asset itself, can you add value? Are you, as the investor, actually in control? Do you have an angle on that asset, planning or change of use? Or are you just exposed to the vagaries of the capital markets, i.e. you're relying upon yield compression? So you can have the best asset manager, you can have the most highly specified building, but if the location is a dud, you've got a serious issue on your hands. And that sort of leads on to jurisdiction as well. Um, And just trying to think of a a real-life example, we had one family who wanted to invest in Romania. And we conducted an extensive DD program for them. And actually, we concluded that there was a value trap issue there in the commercial markets. And we actually ended up forming a joint venture with a house builder who, despite COVID, despite Russia, Ukraine, despite rising interest rates, and also current Middle East intentions, they have just posted another record year worth of turnover. I'd like to turn to, uh, and this I've got to declare a little bit of, 
home country, home city bias. Uh, so I wanted to turn the spotlight onto Canary Wharf, which has been something that has been in and out of my professional career since its since its very early early days. Uh, launched, I think, under uh, when Mrs. Thatcher or Lady Thatcher was Prime Minister. So we've t- touched on how sort of COVID has, and the aftermath of COVID, I should say, has changed the way that people use offices and therefore the office building landscape. And, you know, my, my lay sense is that's been particularly hard on somewhere like Canary Wharf, which are these sort of big block uh, office buildings dedicated at a particular sector of the economy. Is it, what's, what's your feeling about, about Canary Wharf Ross? I mean, has it, is it now, is it investable? Is it one of those areas that will never recover? What do you, what do you feel about it? I think in some ways it's unfair to single out the wharf. Um, I mean, it is a phenomenal estate. It's got strong infrastructure. It's got good amenity value. But as you touched on, the sheer concentration of high-rise offices, it's now presented its challenges. So Canary traditionally offered two key benefits to occupiers. The first was the ability to house a large number of employees in an efficient, regular-shaped building. And the second advantage was the significant rent and rates savings compared to other subsectors of London. So as you now have employers competing in these so-called wars for talent to retain staff and also corporates looking to make really strong environmental signals to their shareholders, they've started to use their real estate campuses as a way of achieving both of those. So that combined with the working from home lower requirement for desk space and the Monday to Friday model, which we talked about earlier, it's leading to the sort of advent of flex working practices. And and it means that occupiers need to take less space. So an occupier, when it considers its next move, can now take less space and technically afford to pay a higher rent on that lesser amount of space and be in the same position that they were before. So this is causing a bit of a shift from East London towards West London. And that's where I think the wharf is a little bit exposed at the moment. To take the other part of the question about being investable, I think it comes down to prospects and pricing. You, you look at the Elizabeth line, that is an absolute game changer for the wharf. And I'm convinced you'll see an ever greater change of use in that market which will slowly reduce office stock um, and it'll bring back a more favourable balance to supply and demand in the wharf. As for pricing, I think that correction is ongoing. In the market at the moment, there's one particular lender-led sale where there's been a pricing correction of around 50%. And I think we, we can speak with some experience. We advised a family office after the GFC, uh, to buy in the wharf, and then we made an exit prior to COVID. So that client saw uh, double-digit levered income yield, saw capital appreciation of around 45 to 50%, and we then recommended a sale ahead of the tightening of interest rates. Now, that buyer to whom we sold the asset is now, or has, actually defaulted on their loan against the same asset. 
And we took that client out of Canary Wharf at that time and then put them into a prime Mayfair hotel. So from an occupational stance, we took them out of a weakening East London location where there's now chronic oversupply to a Mayfair hotel, which is actually experiencing record levels of occupation and record levels of effectively room rate um, increases. Yes, I think that's, that's, I'm familiar with that trade. And I think that's a very telling, telling example or instance in a way of what you're saying, Ross, which is there are opportunities, they come up from time to time, you have, I can uh, attest and vouch being <laughs> vehemently saying, look, don't do anything in real estate, don't chase after yield, this has been your message the last few years. And you, you have now pivoted to say no, now is the time to look. And I suppose if one were to go backwards in time you were saying not as part of captain at that time but as an advisor to to us and to some of our clients you were saying in the aftermath of the financial crisis look there is there are opportunities here there are dislocations um and and you should buy and then and i suppose the very good news for for us is you then turn around and say well actually i think now's a good time to sell and here's something else you could buy that looks more more resilient so I think that's a very, very good example. And perhaps sort of segues nicely into the very, very practical side of real estate, which is actually buying things and going from the strategic intent to want to own real estate to actually going and doing the transaction, finding the asset and doing the transaction and actually getting the thing in your name and and, and, and being that owner. And let's let's imagine... Ross, for a moment, that you are advising somebody who uh, hasn't invested in direct real estate before, but is, is, is completely bought into your advice that there are opportunities now. How do they actually go about it? What are, you, what are you going to advise them to do? What does it look like in practice? I think the starting point is you've got to differentiate between product and deals. Um, I'm sure many, many families see plenty of product but it's finding deals which can be closed on acceptable terms, which involves the skill. Brokers have always pumped product, and we started to see a trend within our own client base whereby some were being put into deals and then being somewhat abandoned to execute the business plan or worse still, weren't actually given a business plan. While some market practitioners focused on the buy and the sell, we, we, we've actually felt that the period during which the asset is held and the asset management was somewhat un, unrepresented. We've refurbished hotels, built offices from the ground up, financed assets with new and existing lenders, um, as just a few examples. We tend to find the more interesting deals often come from existing owners or operators who want to take their assets or operating businesses to the next stage of growth. Uh, just to um, perhaps begin to wrap up, Ross, what, what, what are your three pearls of wisdom that you would offer to an investor looking to, uh, to go into direct commercial real estate for the first time? I think you need to seek counsel um, and try and ascertain and price the level of risk that an opportunity really presents. Um, The case of debt offering equity-like returns makes direct investing as an equity investor slightly more challenging at the moment. So you're saying there might be more opportunity in debt than equity. That's that's the key point there. I I think definitely at the moment, debt is presenting more opportunity. And it offers that sort of downside risk protection as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess the bit to be careful of there is the duration of the debt 
you could see the debt repaid in full, you could see that sponsor move on, and actually you're then out of the market. Unlike if you take an equity position, you can remain invested. Yes, you'd want to you'd want to write a long duration note. I see exactly what you're saying. You want to make sure that if you, you capture these attractive rates and don't find yourself having the loan repaid, having in your mind put capital to work at an attractive rate of return for a long period of time and then discovering that the lender pays you back and you have to redeploy the capital at possibly a less less propitious time. So, okay, so take advice. Uh, what next? I mean, take advice um, on the subject of timing. I think you've got to agree what your time horizons are. I take one of our clients as a case study who's held the same real estate for over 400 years. And it's that particularly long-term approach which has allowed them to thrive and ride out everything from world wars and pandemics. Yes, 400 years is a very long time. <laughs> Not all of our clients have that horizon. <laughs> but yes, you're saying though, but know what it is. Know what your time horizon is and know the period of time over which you're going to decide whether something uh, you know, is, is a success, know what success looks like. Exactly. And, and being in in the equity, you have more control over that time horizon. Whereas if you're in the debt element of the stack, you are less in control. I think you also need to be real with yourself and set parameters as to how involved you actually want to be in the asset. Do you have a team who can develop or asset manage or do you want to outsource that? And actually, if you do want to outsource that, you need to budget for your fees accordingly. That's key, that key point about it's, uh, you know, know thyself. Because wanting to be a direct investor in commercial real estate doesn't mean, as you rightly say, Ross, that you therefore have to do every job yourself or in your own team. There's always a, an in-source, outsource decision at all phase. You might choose to insource the the ownership of the real estate, but uh, you know, if you wish to, you can outsource the ongoing manager, and that's that. That's what you're saying, isn't it? You've got to, and you need to know in advance what it is you want to do and what it is you want to uh, hire third parties to do. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I think there's probably another theme here, which is person what, with what's happening in the funding markets. You you really do need to understand and stress test your leverage levels. I mean, those borrowing only 50% three years ago were not expecting that they would be asked to put more equity into those same deals today. Yes, we, we, we have this conversation often or had it often recently, Ross, which is, is this double hit, isn't it, where not only have the gross values of assets come down because of higher discount rates, because of rising interest rates, that means that if your loan to value is expressed as a percentage uh, it is a lower dollar number because the total value of the asset has fallen, which you therefore need uh, may need to remedy that. On top of that, the percentage loan to values that banks are offering have come down as well. So there have been borrowers who have had that that double hit, and that's you know part of the reason why there's the opportunity. But and your point here is 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 I think that might have been four pearls of wisdom. But uh, anyway, uh, is to is, is, to, is to be very, very clear about your financing arrangements and the risks of them and the the what if to to jump back to something that Robert Orford talks about, which is sort of be humble, uh, uh, be, be cautious. You're saying definitely be careful and cautious around around your financing. Absolutely. And actually, to take it one step further, it's a triple hit, isn't it? Because you've got the reducing loan to values, you've got the reducing values, 
and the actual interest payable has at least doubled in most occasions. I think that neatly sums up this podcast. Thank you, Ross, because you've described there the three sources of tension in the market that have created what we see at the macro level and the conversations we have with Robert, which is this deflating experience across the board in real estate. But in the conversation we've had here, Ross, these are the genesis of the opportunities that now face us because there are people who are not well financed. There are occupiers who are no longer using real estate in the same way. There is therefore dislocation uh, and that creates opportunity. So Ross, thank you very much. Thank you for joining this special edition of Talking Capital. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.